other than opening up to Daniel, I'm going to ask you to open back up to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk gives us a little bit of a a background here on what's going to happen, Um, but we're going to start there in just a moment. But keep your finger there. We're going to, after we look at Habakkuk, we're going to turn to Daniel 1. But before we begin, I'd like to pray, shall we? Father in heaven, this is your word. We ask that by your grace, it would be a lamp to our feet this morning. It would be a light to our path. That we may live in honor of you. That we may see you, know you, and know then how we ought to live in the world in which you have put us. Have mercy, we pray, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. This summer, like most summers for kids, they have off of school and... uh, If you can recall, many of you are adults, you can recall your own summers as children where you were doing whatever you could, enjoying the outdoors. And if you were like most boys, uh, there were times where you did things that were rather less than intelligent, all right? Uh, Less than fully wise. And more than that, it probably... Had your parents been seeing you, watching you, they would have suggested another course of action, something that would have been less dangerous to your overall health. And like that, I'm sure your kids, kids, I'm sure you have enjoyed your summer, though it is now at an end. And I'm sure you did things this summer that you just simply enjoyed that were very little, maybe there wasn't so much wisdom to it. Uh, My eldest son, on two occasions this summer, almost lost his life. Uh, though he didn't quite realize it. The first was about a month and a half ago, um, we were talking, and as we were talking and joking around, he was trying to think of time that was really long ago. He was, something was made so long ago, and he was like, it was, it was made like way back in 1995. In that moment, I almost reached over and ended his life. 1995? And 15-year-old boy, that's, that's as ancient as it gets. Well, just a few weeks ago, we were joking around as a family. We were talking about something, and afterwards, we wanted to look something up, and I needed to put my name and my age into a form. And as I was putting it down, I put down my birth date, 1983. My eldest son perched over my shoulder watching. As soon as I wrote down 1983, the only word out of his mouth was Old. At that moment, I began planning his funeral, which I was sure was going to come about at any moment. You know, he wasn't being disrespectful. He was, he's joking around with me. We were having fun. And, um, you know, that fun almost transitioned to not fun very quick. Um, But the paperwork involved in murdering your children is apparently long, very lengthy. So we didn't. But um, 1983, you know, that sounds like forever to a kid who's only 15 years old. And a lot has changed since 1983, hasn't it? A lot has changed. The world is constantly changing. Back in 1964, the great theologian Bob Dylan made a song about the world changing. I'm being facetious. He wrote this song, which became an anthem for that age. The times they are changing. Come, mothers and fathers throughout the land, and don't criticize what you don't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend a hand. 
for the times they are changing. The line, it is drawn, the curse, it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast. As the present now will later be past, the order is rapidly fading. And the first one now will later be last. For the times, they are changing. It's not exactly prophetic. It was more like obvious in his time. The times, they are changing. The times, they are always changing. Those words could be written then. It could be written today. Everything is constantly changing all the time, isn't it? For you young, you don't really have this perspective. Kids, you don't see it. Right now, every year in your five, six, seven, ten, whatever, however many years the Lord has given you, it just seems small. It's, everything's new. But to those who have been around for a little while, they, they have some perspective. They get to see how quickly, how fast, how radically the world has shifted in so many different ways. I mean, here we are, we're, we're looking at this text in Daniel chapter 1. We're, we're going to be looking here on Labor Day weekend, which is the weekend that kind of marks a large change. We use it to mark a change in seasons, really. We go from summertime to, I realize it's not quite yet, but we've got the fall, which is coming. Some of you dropped your kids off at school, or you began classes at home Some of you dropped your kids off at college for the first time. Some for the last time. Some of us in recent months have said, have given away daughters in marriage. The times they are a-changing. But it's not just our lives. It's not just our, our stature, our health that changes. It's the world around us. The world around us, as Bob Dylan tells us, is changing. It is constantly changing, radically changing. It's changing all the time economically. It's changing in ways that we, if we believe those who are prognosticating about such things, we might be terrified. What apocalyptic event is coming next? It's changing politically in ways that we could never have fathomed 10 years ago so that we do not know what the next 10 years will hold. It is changing culturally, socially, in ways that were beyond what any of us thought was possible 20 plus years ago. The world, it is a changing. And the fears of economic change, climate change, political change, cultural change, social change, fill in the blank of whatever kind of change the fear grips our world, and it grips people on all sides. And coupled with this loss of confidence in our institutions, the tragedies that are happening all around the world, all around our country, and they get reported on regularly, constantly, it has the effect of making us afraid. Don't get me wrong, there are, there are forces in our world that are absolutely set on causing us to be afraid or angry. They are forces that are, that are taking advantage, being paid, finding financial gain in unsettling people. There has been so much change, so much uncertainty, so much fear, and so much anger about what is happening all around us in the world. And it begs the question, how, how are you and I to live? If you're a Christian, that is, you have set your hope on Christ alone, 
How are you to live in such a world that opposes everything that Christ taught, everything that we see in the scriptures? And not just opposes it, but finds it to be morally repugnant. It's not merely that it is uninterested in the things that are taught in the scriptures, but it finds that the very morals and mores of of this word are not just out of date, they are dangerous. They are hostile to the world. How are we to live? Are we to simply capitulate, to assimilate into the world, to get on the right side of history? Should we be more isolated, form protective communities, disconnect ourselves and our families from everything and everyone, retreat into the background? Or should we become more militant, more angry, more oppositional, and fight? And if we decide to fight, fight who? Fight where? Fight how? Perhaps we should just ask this question, is there any hope? You watch the news, you read the news, it scrolls across your screen. Conspiracies abound about what is happening where and what's causing it and what cabal is behind the scenes. Shaping things, moving things, moving people. And none of us really knows. None of us really knows And even if we did know, what can we do? You and I, we are little cogs in a vast machine. How are we to act? Daniel touches on this topic. Daniel shows us Where we are to look. Daniel helps us know how to live and it reminds us of where we can set our hope. You and I need the book of Daniel. We need the message of Daniel. And this morning we are going to do a broad overview of the book of Daniel. We'll come back to chapter 1 later, but join with me and Habakkuk chapter 1 now. Earlier, Dana read it for us, 1 through 11. And there you have, in the first three, first four verses, Habakkuk, this prophet of God, he asks God a question. Really, he is asking, how can so much injustice be in the land of Israel? Habakkuk is writing around 615 to 607 years before Jesus, before Christ. And he's questioning, how can you allow all of this violence, this iniquity? How can you cause us to see it? The the people of God, the people of Israel are now just rife with corruption, rife with wickedness. The reforms of Josiah have been passed, and now a series of terrible kings have come on the scene who are short, they each, their reigns are short-lived, but they are each more and more wicked than the, than the last one. And so he questions God, how, how can you allow injustice in the land of Israel? 
And God's response in verses 5 through 11 is that he is bringing a nation and he names that nation in verse 6. He calls them the Chaldeans. That is, they were the Babylonians, the Chaldean people. He is bringing that people and that people is going to come and they are going to destroy Israel. They are going to conquer Israel. From verse 12 in chapter 1 to verse 1 of chapter 2, Habakkuk questions how God can use such a wicked and perverse people. The Babylonian people were incredibly corrupt, incredibly wicked, incredibly idolatrous. They were, however bad things were in Israel, by Habakkuk's estimation, by any estimation, the people of Babylon were far, far, far worse. And so he questions, how can this be? And in verse 1, he responds, after asking God, how can you allow such a wicked nation to be the one that, that is the instrument of your justice? He responds, he says, all right, now I've asked my question, verse 1, in chapter 2, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he, that is what the, what the Lord, will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. He knows God's going to answer. He knows the correction is going to come. But he's, all right, now I'm going to wait. I'm waiting for you to give me an answer. I'm setting myself here on the wall, so to speak, metaphorically. I'm expecting God to answer. And God's answer, and God answers From that point on, verse 2 forward, but you notice in verse 4, here is this word, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. The answer for Habakkuk is that he is going to have to trust God, and in trusting God, he will become just, he will become righteous. And that the righteous, the just, they, they live by faith. They are trusting God, his word, and his promises, even though it is above their intellectual pay grade. And Daniel is a picture of one who lives by faith, the just who lives by faith. Daniel is in Babylon living by faith. Habakkuk writes sometime between, like I said, 615 to 607 BC. That's 615, 607 to 615 years before Christ. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon in his first year of reign, he is coming through. He is opposing Carchemish, the leader in Egypt, the king of Egypt. He is setting down the rebellion and establishing Babylonian rule over Assyrian rule, over all other rulers who had tried to oppose him. And as he's finished up that that campaign, he sweeps back through Israel. He He besieges Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem falls, he invades and he takes an initial host of people captive with him back to Babylon in 605 BC. Jerusalem will fall utterly and truly in 586 BC. Later, it will be destroyed. 
The Jerusalem, Jer- Jerusalem temple will be uh, completely destroyed. But here in, in 605 BC, it is a, a host of people who are taken captive. And Daniel is one of them. These individuals are taken captive for a variety of reasons. One such reason would be that uh, by taking these individuals captives, and they were taking the wealthy, the elite, the noble, the rich, the, the, the influencers of that time, they were taking them and their young people captive. The goal was that by removing them from Israel, taking them to Babylon, retraining them there, that they will create a new generation of Jewish leaders who will be loyal to the Babylonian empire. The goal was that these people, like all other peoples, would assimilate into Babylon, into Babylonian culture, into the Babylonian religion. The other part of this was that these individuals who were kept, they would act as bargaining chips so that everyone back in Jerusalem, if they were to decide to rebel, they would remember who has their children. They would remember who has their leaders. So turn with me back to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Which, if you are using the Pew Bible, it is page 764. 764. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is led away at this time in 605 B.C., by most estimates, he is, kids, listen up, Daniel is between the ages of 13, 14, 15, or 16. He's somewhere in that age. He is a young man. This would have been the kid who had just in the last year or two made it into the youth group. Seventh, eighth, ninth grade kid. So follow along as I read just the seven verses, first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the artifacts, some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, that is, into the land of Babylon to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the very treasury, into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, those would have been official leaders in his time in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, to bring, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, They were good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, the king's food, and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave, the name, he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. 
Here what we find is Daniel experiencing massive change in his life. He was born most likely at the latter part of the reign of Josiah, who was a good king, a godly king. Josiah had done numerous reforms through Israel. He had established so many good things in Israel. He had rebuilt the temple. He had discovered the law. So many things, positive things. And yet the kings following Josiah were incredibly wicked. And, and one after another, they begin to fall. And now, as a very young man, He is taken from Judah, his home, and he is taken far away to a foreign country as a 13 to 16-year-old young guy. And he is going to be trained as a scribe. And that, we, we read earlier that for three years they are going to be trained. And that's fascinating. Daniel is fascinating. It includes so many incredible details that if Daniel was writing much later, or if Daniel was a... A, a, a book that was written in the first or second century BC, BC, that is before Christ, as some have some conjectured, that his details would not make sense. They, they would not fit. He would not have known about these things. But we know from secular sources that Babylon, the, the standard age, I'm sorry, the standard time for scribal training was three years. He's going to be trained in this time. And Daniel is going to continue to see a lot of change. He will serve first under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. And then that empire is going to give way to the Medo-Persian Empire. From Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar to Darius. And that Medo-Persian Empire is going to give way to the Persian Empire. And Cyrus, by chapter 10, we, we find Cyrus being named. And Daniel, over his lifetime of 70 plus years in Babylon, is going to experience massive change. He is taken to this land of Shinar, we are told in verse 2. And that's important. It's not just the land of Babylon. It's the land of Shinar. And Daniel is doing something important by naming the land of Babylon the land of Shinar. He is identifying it with its historical reference. The last time or the very first times we see the land of Shinar mentioned in the Bible are way back in Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel. They're the people who rebel against God. They want to make a name for themselves over God. They want to establish their own glory, their own kingdom. And it's there in a kingdom that is now in every way opposed to God. Daniel is saying, look, it's not just, the, it's not just Babylon. This is, this is where that happened. This is those kind of people. Daniel's life is coming apart of the scenes. Coming apart of the seams. His country is fractured and broken. In 20 plus years, his, his country is going to be completely conquered. The rest of those who lead and, and are faithful, they will be brought to Babylon. And Daniel is carted away, away from the land of promise, effectively cut off from his family. And he feels the intense pressures of the world. 
And the goal here of Babylon is that he and all with him, they will assimilate. That they're going to become Babylonian. That they will learn the Babylonian, not just the language, not just the, 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 the literature, but that the culture behind it. That they, that Daniel, like every other nation around, that, that they will see that because Babylon won, then certainly that must mean the Babylonian god, Marduk. He is over all, and so we must worship him. And Daniel shows us what it looks like for someone to live faithfully. For the just to live by faith. The very name Daniel means God is my judge. And Daniel lives in that knowledge. That God is the only one to whom he will answer. That God is the one who is ruling and reigning over all things. And that is at the very heart of Daniel's message. That God is ruling and reigning over all things. That he is the king and his kingdom is coming. Those are the twin pillars, the twin messages of Daniel. And they flow all the way through the book. There is one king, and his kingdom over all is over all, and his kingdom is most certainly going to come and be established. We see this in Daniel chapter one, when he learns to live faithfully under God's rule, despite the restrictions, the dietary restrictions. Even such things as food and drink, Daniel is saying, No, I'm going to live faithfully to the Lord, even if it costs me my life. In Daniel chapter 3 and 6, 8 and 10 and 12, Daniel shows us what it looks like. He and his friends show us what it looks like to live confidently under the rule of God, even when under the threat of death. So that when Daniel's friends are threatened with fire, or when Daniel is threatened with lions... Their hope in God, their confidence in him is not shaken. Daniel 4 and 5 reminds us that no matter what happens in our world, no matter who sits in the Oval Office or what names populate the seats of Congress or what organizations are lobbying for power, that there is one king And one king on the throne. Look at Daniel chapter 4. Verse 34 and 35. Daniel 4 is remarkable. It's remarkable here at the end. Because what we have is not just Daniel himself writing. We have King Nebuchadnezzar. Who makes a public proclamation. And Daniel records it. This would be akin to our current president or to a president of the United States making a public announcement in in this vein. Listen to what he says, verse 34. And at the end of time, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed. Are, they are as nothing. They are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar makes this public 
public confession of who God is. And Daniel 2, chapter 2 and 7, builds on this theme and calls us to live confidently under the reign of God, knowing that his kingdom will win out, as Daniel is given visions of four successive kingdoms going from Babylon all the way to Rome. This is part of the reason why some scholars in our modern day have suggested that Daniel could not, Daniel, back in the 500s, B.C., 500 plus years before Christ, could not have possibly have written Daniel because it is far too specific. He couldn't possibly have known. And the answer is, well, of course, Daniel couldn't known, but the Lord revealed it to him. We see this truth that God's kingdom will win out at the end of Daniel chapter 7. I'm sorry, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Look there with me. Daniel is looking at these visions and he is discussing, he is meditating on all that he sees. and, And then he is given this word. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. That is, they brought him, you notice it's capitalized, speaking of this one Son of Man, a favorite title of Christ near before him, before the Lord, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall, the one which shall not be destroyed. Not only is the king reigning, the king's kingdom will come and it will be established and it will be unmistakable. And all this comes to a head in Daniel chapter 9. Where God prophetically reveals to his servant his plans for his people. Here in that passage in Daniel chapter 9, we are given a picture of, we are told of Christ's, of Christ's coming, his first coming and his second coming. This vision is given in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish their transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And yet, we see that all of this is going to, in verses 25 and 26, that there is a a future establishing of the kingdom that is going to come. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined." And it speaks of this one week where this one is going to rise and make a covenant with the world. But here we are looking forward to the coming of Christ, the coming of his kingdom. Repeatedly throughout Daniel and in the most impossible of ways, God is seen to be the one true king. 
the one who was really on the throne of this world. And everyone who opposes him as king, everyone who sets themselves against him, all who try to exalt themselves against his glory, all those who in arrogance, in pride, seek to establish their own glory, their own way, their own fame, their own influence. God himself opposes. God himself promises that he will humble, that he will humiliate, that he will destroy. In this book, Daniel is, Daniel is a book for all peoples. In one sense, Daniel is a letter to those who are hoping in God. Daniel is writing here towards the end of the 6th century, around 530 to 535 BC. He is writing to the people of Israel who are being called to go back to the promised land. They are going to experience incredible hardship, incredible opposition, and he is writing to show them what it will look like, what it will take for them to follow and obey the Lord. What does genuine faithfulness look like in a world that will oppose you at every turn? Daniel is writing to his people, to the people of Israel, to that end. But Daniel is not just written to the people of Israel. It is a letter to all peoples. We see this in the very way that Daniel structures his book. The book is easily broken up into two halves. You've got narrative section in chapters 1 to 7. The second half, chapters, I'm sorry, chapters 1 to 6 are narrative. Chapters 7 to 12, they are prophetic. Two very different parts of Daniel. Very different halves. And yet, they work together. The first half is written primarily in Aramaic, but chapter 1, which acts sort of like an introduction, is written entirely in Hebrew. Chapter 7, which acts as an introduction to the second half of the book, and the second half, which is written written exclusively in Hebrew, chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. Aramaic being the, the language of the people of that time, of all peoples. Daniel isn't merely writing to the people of Israel. He is intending this book, this letter, this document to be read by all peoples. He's intending this letter to be read by by people who profess to be and to follow God, to follow the Lord, and those who do not. In our day, we might say Daniel is writing for both Christians and non-Christians. This book is for all. All peoples. It is a tract. It is a a message, an evangelistic message for us all. Daniel is a warning to all peoples. That to live as if God doesn't matter, to live as if he doesn't reign, to live and play and work, as as if this world is all that there is, and the next world doesn't matter, and God's kingdom will never come, and his judgment will never touch us, to act and live like that, which is the normal way in which we live in this world. That is the height of arrogance. That is the height of defiance. That is the height of sin. And this sin God will not overlook or excuse. He will judge. And friends, we all deserve that judgment. 
As you read through Daniel, we will read through Daniel's heroic faith, him and his friends, and we will be tempted to put ourselves in the place of Daniel. I can be like Daniel, and certainly we are encouraged to follow him in his example. But the reality is you and I often don't live like Daniel. We fall far short of the example that Daniel sets. From the very beginning, you and I, from a very first breath, you and I have displayed our own sin, our own willfulness, our own arrogant pride. As lovely and beautiful as newborn babies are, the moment that they begin to express themselves, we see what is in their hearts. The selfishness, the pride. We are not born morally neutral. We are not okay. Children, do you not see this in yourself? Do you not know in your own heart? Can you not tell how hard it is when your parents tell you to do something and you do not want to do it? You know how hard that is for you to obey? And the reason you obey may be because you are afraid of loss of privileges, afraid of whatever discipline may come, or you, you obey because you want to please them. You want them to be happy with you. You want life to go easy for yourself. But in that calculation that you make, how often does God and his glory and honor come into it? I would ask us, as you readied yourself this morning, you got dressed, you went to the closet, you pulled out, A shirt, a blouse, a dress, pants, whatever you're wearing. What went into the calculation of your dress? Whether you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. How often does the glory of God come into the calculation of what you wear? How much more is it I wonder what so-and-so will think if I don't wear this or if I wear this. How often more are we afraid of what others will think rather than what God will think? How often we, we want others to like the way we look more than we want God to like the way we look, than to glorify him. We are self-centered creatures. And all this arises from the heart. Jesus himself tells us, for from within come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What the hand does, what the lips speak, all of this comes out of the heart. I mean, how many of you have... Ever had a disagreement with someone? You've had an argument. Perhaps this past week, if you're married, you've had a disagreement with your spouse. And maybe in that moment, you weren't able to resolve that disagreement. And so later on, you were thinking through that disagreement again. And you are replaying the events of that. How many of you have ever lost a replay in your head? Most of us have had arguments, almost all of us. 
I have lost many arguments. I've never lost a replay. In our own minds, we... We are the ones who matter. We are the ones who are right. We are the ones who receive glory. But despite the fact that you and I deserve judgment, that so often you and I are not like Daniel, we are not like his friends, we are much more like Nebuchadnezzar, we are much more like his faithless, godless son. Daniel is good news for us. Daniel is a picture of the one who will come, who by his faithfulness will redeem his people. Daniel is a message that God receives and delivers and forgives and has mercy. Not on those who by their own strength and work try to earn it, but by those who humble themselves and repent. And this confident faith centers on the promises of God around Christ Jesus. The one who is the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7. The one who is with the Ancient of Days. The one who in Daniel chapter 9 is going to make an end of sin and who will come at the end of days. Christ, by his sinless sacrifice... There is a king. And he is ruling and reigning now, and one day his rule will be seen in this world. And one day each and every one of us will give an account to him. Friend, how will you answer to God on that day? There's something else that's fascinating about the book of Daniel. Daniel is taken away in 605 BC as a young man, but there is an older man, Jeremiah the prophet, who is living through that time, living through that experience. If you are able, open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 24. I don't often have us move around in the Bible, but this is a number of texts that touch on what we want to look at today we can begin to think that if we are living in a world that opposes God, that God's favor has been removed from us. That we have no hope of his blessing, no hope of his strength. Jeremiah is living through this as a grown man. He is watching everything happen. He is writing Jeremiah 24 after the people of Israel have been after Daniel and those with him had been taken away in 605 BC. We see this in verse 1. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. Do you see that? Do you see that time frame? All right, that, that, that hook in verse 1 of Jeremiah 24, connects us with Daniel chapter 21. And the expectation in Jerusalem at this time is that the ones who have been taken away into Babylon, they must certainly be under God's displeasure. And the ones who are left, the ones who have either sought to please Babylon, 
so that they can remain in power and stay and live in peace in Jerusalem and in Judah, or those who have sought to escape the, the, the enemy of Babylon by fleeing to Egypt, they must be the ones who are blessed. And Jeremiah sees this vision. One basket had two baskets. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good. And the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They are so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like those good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans, for I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart." And as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave them to their father, gave to them and to their fathers. What we see here is that the people that are taken away, the people who find themselves in a foreign culture, a world that is in every way seeking to upend their beliefs, is opposing them in all that they hold dear. That is exactly where God promises to bless them. That is exactly where God promises to be with them, to set his affection on them. Friends, as you go to work this week and as you talk and as you listen to people at work or as you listen to the radio and watch TV and you wonder what has gone wrong with the world and you are being led to believe that perhaps, perhaps God has abandoned us. Perhaps... We do not have the blessing of God. Perhaps Christianity is lost. It is so weak in this world. Friends, I would have you remember Jeremiah 24. I would have you remember Daniel. The place of blessing is not security. The place of blessing was not in the promised land. The place of blessing was where God had taken them. Was where God had put them. The place of blessing was in exile. Brothers and sisters, when things get difficult, we tend to get lost. We do not know where to look. We look around, around at the world, and we are crushed. We look around at others and hoping that someone will step up, hoping that someone will solve the crisis at hand. We look down at our phones computer screens, television screens. We can look into the deep recesses of the corner of the internet to find out that grain of truth that only one person seems to know. Worse yet, we look within ourselves. 
what Daniel calls us to do, whether you are at school this week, whether you are at work, whether you are at home, what Daniel calls us to do is to not to look around, is to not to look within. We are called to look up. To look up to the king who is now reigning. And we are called to look ahead to the king whose kingdom will come. We are called to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are often tempted to lose sight not just of your glory, but of your reign. We are tempted to lose hope as we look around us and the mess that we find ourselves in, as we feel the pressures at work and at school and elsewhere to abandon what you have taught us, to abandon what your word says, to believe that which is not true. Oh God, help us to remember you who reign. Help us to remember your kingdom which is coming. Your son who will receive us to himself and who will return and establish his kingdom in this world. Oh God, let us look to that day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.